Bob O'Donnell started his political career as a driver for a politician. He's a neighborhood kid from Philly's Germantown, and he served for nearly 20 years in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and rose in leadership to become Speaker of the House. Today, Bob remains a passionate uh, advocate for educational opportunity for all kids. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President and CEO of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I'm in Chestnut Hill. I'm talking with uh, Bob O'Donnell, former Speaker of the House, uh, Democratic uh, legislator for uh, almost 20 years. Uh, uh, from uh, Was this part of your district uh, when you were an elected official? Uh, during part of uh, my tenure and then on reapportionment, part of Chestnut Hill got included in my district. But I'm originally from Germantown. Uh, and in Philadelphia, that means a great deal because we identify on, based on neighborhood uh-huh. more than on the city. Okay. So when I was uh, first running for office, you could tell the neighborhood divide because my signs were on telephone poles on one side of Wissahickon Avenue, the dividing line uh-huh. of the next neighborhood, and my opposition signs were all on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Well, Bob, uh, I want to talk about uh, you know how you grew up in Germantown, your family, uh, and then we'll get into the politics of things and certainly what your take on uh, uh, politics, where they stand today, and all the craziness, and certainly even how they compare to Maybe the craziness uh, uh, doesn't seem so crazy anymore when you right, were in right, elected office. Right, right. Uh, so tell me growing up, uh, little Bobby O'Donnell. Uh, oh, my here. goodness. Um, so I grew up, uh, first of all, as a neighborhood kid. And what that means is that the known world was very, very limited. Uh, my dad was a bus driver, and because of that, he had a pass to go on SEPTA at the time, PTC. Uh, which is the transit authority in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we didn't really need a car because he could get to work that way. And my mom's um, known world consisted of her being a crossing guard at the neighborhood, and I walked to school. And so being a neighborhood kid meant that your your world was really quite circumscribed, and, and that's how you identified. Um, and were and your parents uh, from this area? Did they grow up in the Philadelphia area? My grandfather uh, came over from Ireland. My grandparents on my father's side came over from Ireland uh, in 1920, and uh, my dad was the first born here. Uh, and on my mom's side, um, kind of an ethnic mix, and the, that family tree is lost in the mists of history. So you can't blame everything on your Irish heritage, No, there's right? not much I can do there. <laughs> but, but Irish, being a neighborhood Irish Catholic labor, my dad was active in the union, really shaped uh, my values mm. growing up. So I think that, that combination of factors really gave me an awful lot to start with. You know, I'm really very fortunate that way. And so when you add some pragmatism to that, you helps you figure out what's going on. You uh, were your parents involved politically? I mean, you said your dad was involved with the union. Was that uh, kind of his political involvement? or? Yeah, neither were very involved. Uh, my dad was involved in the union, not in politics mm-hmm. per se. And so he was, uh, I have a picture of him, as a matter of fact, cut from the Evening Bulletin, then the, a newspaper of record in mm-hmm. the city. Uh, in the front row, uh, standing up to vote for a strike in support of their leadership, led by a, a great character, Michael Quill, Michael J. Quill, a uh, great union leader at the time. But beyond the union, uh, they weren't involved. My mom, uh, who handled the budget and, in retrospect, most of the decision-making, <laughs> um, uh, had a much uh, more tempered view of unions. She never th- saw strikes as really very productive, particularly on a limited budget. And my dad's rationale, which I will never forget, is that we may not make it up, uh, but the next generation will. Mm -hmm. So uh, were your parents, uh, I assume, Irish, uh, Catholic, uh, Democrats? I mean, is that kind of like on your your birth certificate? Um, It's on my birth certificate on my father's side. Uh My mother was a teetotaling Methodist of French, English, and Welsh extraction. Uh, So her orientation, very, very different. The neighborhood was mostly Catholic, Uh uh, almost all Irish, but some Italian as well. Um, And so 
my first uh, experience with prejudice, if you will, was the notion of having a Protestant mother and uh, my father marrying outside the tribe, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> so that really was another kind of an influential awakening. So uh, where did the, the political bug get you? At, at what age? Where you know influences you that. Know, uh, that uh, caused that so uh, I disease, was, right? As we <laughs> <laughs> so I was uh, working midnight to eight and going to college during the day, and uh, had, uh, by virtue of that experience, what in Philadelphia is known as an attitude. <laughs> so, in any event, I, I, the kindest way to put it, I guess, would be that I was outspoken. Uh, in class, and a young woman. And said, you went to Temple, correct? Temple. Yeah, so At that point, I I have a somewhat checkered academic career. Uh, I was. They haven't uh, rescinded that uh, association <laughs> yeah, degree. Right. Yes. <laughs> so I, I started out at LaSalle College and managed managed to lose my scholarship and whatnot. Learned that lesson, went to night school, and then transferred to Temple. So, in any <laughs> event, so it took me a while to get out of college. Uh, so, in any event, I was sitting next to a very attractive young woman. Um, who uh, invited me to uh, home with her. So my hopes were dashed when I discovered it was merely to meet her father, uh, who was a judge, a guy named Bill Dwyer. And Dwyer and I had a long conversation, and he suggested to me that I had to get involved in the political campaign. And I was sort of taken aback. And in those days, I, I knew everything, and I knew everything. Mm -hmm. I'm much less certain now. But in any event, I couldn't figure out what was in it for him, you know? And so, frankly, finally, at the end of the conversation, I asked him, frankly, I didn't want to be disrespectful, but I had to ask, what's in it for you? Why would you help me? Mm -hmm. um, and his answer was that, well, he didn't need anything from me, but at some point later on, that I would help someone else. And that really struck home for me because... I realized that politics at its best is much like the neighborhood in the sense that it's not transactional. Mm -hmm. You don't do something for the people across the street and they borrow a ladder from the guy up the street. It's, and at the end of the year, nobody adds it all up and says, do the Flannerys owe the O'Donnells and the O'Donnells owe the Halley? It was all you're part of something larger than yourself. And you've got to put in the pot and you get to take from the pot. So I, I could I could understand that concept. He was so, and as you look back at it, you it wasn't some uh, you know underlying motivation there that it was sort of that pay it forward uh, idea. Yeah, that was it in a nutshell. And yeah. so, uh, so you said, so, okay, I'm in. Or I said, uh, well, yeah. let me let me try it. Okay. So, and I really had zero time on my hands. Well, what was remember. he asking you to try? What were he you? He said, yeah. get involved in the political campaign. Okay. I said, well. Okay, I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> so I, I got a call, uh, and he said, go see this guy, a guy named Gil Stein, who was managing a campaign for the city controller at the time, Alexander Hemphill, who was running for re-election city, as city controller. So I got the best job in politics you could ever have. I was a driver. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I drove the car, and you become invisible in that job. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, you hear everything because people are not paying any attention to your existence anymore. <laughs> and I was astounded. Here were people talking about not just, can I get a better job uh -huh. or, or how do I, you know, it, they were talking about large things, very large things that I thought this is incredibly arrogant of them, <laughs> you know, but it took me outside the neighborhood first of all. Mm -hmm. And second, it gave me an insight into campaigns, and it was very, very exciting. And this is, what, what years are we talking about? 1965. 65, okay. And then you're, you're still <laughs> You said 65 with <laughs> awe, like, yes, there were yeah. people alive in 65. Yeah. <laughs> and what are the politics of, of the city at this time? Uh, Republicans had uh, a oh. lot, of, lot more power, of, obviously, than today, correct? No. No? Uh, okay. The... Uh, just by way of background, the Republicans ran the city until the Second World War. After the war, there was a reform movement. Democrats took over and then got more and more powerful. So by the time 1965 rolled around, the real tension in the city was not Democrat-Republican. There was a Republican Party, and it had some measure of strength in a neighborhood basis. Mm -hmm. But the real tension was organization versus reform and labor versus party. 
So in 1967, Hemphill ran for mayor uh, and against Jim Tate. And Tate was the labor guy, incumbent mayor, and Hemphill was the organization and reform candidate. Okay. So, and anyway, that was the real tension in those okay. days. And so uh, did you elevate from being driver to uh, something else? You What's can't it? elevate yeah. from driver. It's the best possible <laughs> job. In fact, at, if I can jump all the way ahead, yeah. my wife if, some years ago ran for city council at large. And my career, as we laughingly refer to uh it went full circle, and uh-huh. I became her driver. Okay, it was wonderful. <laughs> I would pick her. I would pick her up at the end of my workday to take her around to political events and whatnot. And they, I think of them as kids. They weren't, of course. She's she was a nurse, and so she had a whole lot of young nurses as volunteers, and they would give me driving instructions. You know, it was wonderful. You'd have like a twenty-two-year-old <laughs> kid say, "Drive north on." Broad Street, you're going to you know, <laughs> the you know, the uh, the Polish American Club or whatever. So, so you so you did your undergrad at Temple. Uh, yes. Did you go right to law school from yes. there? Okay. Went right. To and law what school. was your what was your thinking there? What and first, what was your undergraduate degree and what were you thinking you wanted to do? Well, my undergraduate, other than drive cars for politicians. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, I realized uh, first of all, I had, had worked for some years at that point for the phone company, and realized that electronics was not my field. And I realized that a corporate environment was not going to be the right thing for me. So I needed to be in a situation where I needed, where I could be in business for myself. Mm-hmm. And frankly, given the very limited amount of manual skill that I have, um, but I could talk a pretty good game. So I figured, well, probably become a lawyer. Okay. And maybe, maybe some more politics. Mm-hmm. So in uh, ne- the then I'm by that time I'm in law school I'm married uh, my wife's pregnant uh, and we're trying to keep body and soul together um, selling off the wedding gifts so that we could actually <laughs> that's how we lived in a one room apartment I'll never forget it hmm. so in any event um, so nineteen when I got out of law school I went to work for a judge. Uh, doing his research and, you know, opinion writing and so on, and quickly realized that's not for me. And he realized that. And again, he was very <laughs> kind. Uh, and he said, I think, you know, you ought to be in politics. No. Okay. And so he uh, connected me with Milton Schaap's campaign, mm. who was then a candidate for governor in 1970. And uh, I became Milt's driver. Okay. But this time... I've got a guy. <laughs> I'm all around, we're all around the state. So I am the body guy, you uh-huh. know. I travel with Milt everywhere. He's a terrific guy, a really decent human being. So you're doing this married and a kid? Uh, married and okay. a kid. All right. And, but I handle everything except Philadelphia. Okay. So I would come back home exhausted after a trip. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then when Milt was ready to fly out to Erie again... I'd be out, pick him up. So I made all the arrangements. You know, it's raining, the plane is grounded, and you get get a car, you know, all the logistical stuff. Uh, and then also I organized. Um, I realized that uh, in addition to being a decent driver, I had some organizational skill. So I became an organizer for the campaign in the primary in Montgomery, Bucks, and Delaware. Mm-hmm. And also in northwest Philadelphia. So in 1970, Milt becomes governor. Uh, Harrisburg is awfully far out of the neighborhood. <laughs> I, I just didn't see myself in Harrisburg. Uh-huh. And so in any event, 1971, uh, I volunteered to be active for Bill Green. This is now mm-hmm. Bill Green, son see, of the original yes. party boss okay. and father of the current Bill Green. prominent yes, yeah. Bill Green. Right. So in any event, Bill was running for mayor. And the Democratic primary against Frank Rizzo, Hardy Williams, David Cohen. It was a wide-open primary. And so uh, I used the folks uh, who had volunteered in the SHAP campaign and the information and contacts I had to organize the Green campaign in northwest Philadelphia. So that caught the attention of the campaign manager who then hired me to organize citywide for Bill Green in 1971. Um, so, and you can imagine Frank Rizzo, who was successful, he won that primary, mm-hmm. was a very colorful character. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and this was a knockdown, drag out fight in the primary, sometimes literally. Um, and it was, uh, was incredibly exciting. So let's back up. At what point did you say, I am a Democrat? That, that is the party that, uh, that I, you know, I'm going to work for, I want to win at. Um, where, how did, where did your ideology come from, you know, your political thoughts on this? Yeah, at that point, I didn't really have an ideology okay. and was a Democrat because what else would you be? Right, right. I mean, I, you know, that's how I grew up, <laughs> uh-huh. right? So even today, I'm no longer a practicing Catholic, but I tremendously value that that, that culture mm-hmm. and the, the values that I had coming up that I'd learned. But if you, when people ask my religion, I said, I say uh, I was raised Catholic, uh-huh. and that's a kind of a code, so everybody knows how much you value that right, tradition. Right. But the whole idea I would be something else mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. beyond me. So the same thing was true about being Democrat. So, I mean, now I would say to people, I was raised Democrat. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> sure. I no sure. longer live in the neighborhood, uh-huh. but uh, if you will. So in any event, my ideology really just consisted of uh, basic values, uh, I think a significant dose of pragmatism about how you implement those values. Mm-hmm. It never amounted to ideology, and still hasn't, because I'm pretty flexible about how you do things, Mm -hmm. which I don't find among ideologues. I'm just inflexible on the values. (laughs) So it's really a question for me of how do you implement notions of freedom? How do you implement notions of having control over your own life? Mm -hmm. How do you solve problems in, in this neighborhood? How do you solve social problems like... Well, let's just pick one. Um, maybe it's because of my age now I think of this. Having a secure retirement. Mm-hmm. So my ideology consists of thinking about that and looking back and saying, well, gee, my dad had a secure job. Mm-hmm. He was a bus driver. Had a secure job, had a pension, and health care was affordable. So looking forward... I value those things. Mm-hmm. How would you do that now? So it's sort of a non-ideological mm-hmm. approach. Or, for example, education. Mm-hmm. So I've been involved with education as an issue my entire public life, and I still see, and this may strike you, strike you as a dated idea, but I, I still see education as the vehicle of opportunity. Yeah. That's how, in this society, individuals can move ahead mm-hmm. and have upward mobility. Well, and I want to I want to talk about that issue because okay. I know that that's something that we both you know brought us together I don't know how many years yeah, ago a long time right. ago yeah. um, but uh, b- before we get to that at what point during this th- this time that you're being involved in these campaigns as drivers and did you say I think I want to run for office and uh, at what point did you go all right I'm putting my hat in the ring in 1972 uh, well I guess between 70 and 72. When I said, I like politics, I like government, I think this is a way to solve a lot of problems. Not every problem. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to develop at that point an idea about which problems uh-huh. government should be dealing with and which problems they probably shouldn't. Which uh, ones they make worse. is that? <laughs> Yeah, that, that's a possibility. That's a possibility. Um, so I, I'll like to take a tangent on that yeah. point, if I may. But, uh, but meanwhile, back to the question. Um, so by 1972, I was convinced that this was something I enjoyed, something that was important to do, and something I think I could be good at. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to run in 72. And um, I went um, uh, to see, uh, well, first of all, all the people that had been active for Green in 71, Shap in 70, Green in 71, the party organization was not really receptive to our involvement. Uh-huh. Uh, so... What I did was organized races for committee person and ward leader throughout northwest Philadelphia and hooked it up with other people from the Green campaign. And they did the same in their neighborhoods. Uh, Incidentally, they elected Bob Borsky to the state representative and then ultimately to the Congress. So that sort of revolution. She did party infrastructure building, essentially. So we took over the local wards. Uh uh, And the party uh, leadership would not seat the ward leader that we elected. Hmm. So in any event, 1972, I was, wanted to be a candidate for the state legislature. And at the very last minute, reapportionment shut me out. 
So I learned an important lesson, which I remedied myself <laughs> 10 years later when I had a chance drawing to shape the lines the matters report. Not. Absolutely. Uh, and, and did you think there was something nefarious going on there, keeping you out, or it just happened that uh, you, you no. got drawn out of the... I, I don't think I've ever been that egotistical. Okay. Almost 90, 90% plus, it's not about me. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's about somebody doing something else. Now, I may get screwed yeah, in, yeah, the, in the, the process, process right? but it's really not yeah. about me. So in any event, uh, I was going to be the state rep, and people I'd work with are going to be ward leader, et cetera. So in any event, I got shut out and couldn't run in 72, but a deal's a deal, so I supported the guy who was going to be ward leader. Uh, as part of our arrangement, mm -hmm. and uh, the party leadership would not would not seat him, um, so I took him to federal court. Now, at this point, I'm a lawyer three years, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. <laughs> so, and I got a more experienced lawyer to hold my hand through this, um, and uh, a fellow named Gregory Harvey, who was an expert on election law, good guy. Uh, so, in any event, we went to federal court and forced the party to either seat our ward leader or rehold the election. Um, at that point, uh, how come I've, you had to go to federal court for that? Was that, that wasn't something a local because jurist? well, no, because the argument was that um, the, the due process clause guarantees okay. equal protection and and the question is whether or not this is state action, whether or not the action of a political party is a state action, i.e. quasi-governmental, and because it is set up in Pennsylvania, it is, and so the deprivation of a constitutional right gets you into federal court. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, so we, they... Uh, so you're kind of taking on the party here, yes, right? I mean, you're absolutely. a frontal, you know, absolutely. you're taking them to federal court. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like it. Nobody's going <laughs> to, nobody's going to, oh, Bob, boy, we're so glad yeah. you're here, you know? So... Uh, so in any event, so uh, then we reheld the uh, we held the held the election uh, essentially under court uh, jurisdiction, and they tried to play the race card, uh, and by switching out to a black candidate because the ward was predominantly black. Mm -hmm. So what they didn't fully appreciate was that uh, they really underestimated uh, the, the black folks in the ward. Because they figured, oh, we'll run a black guy. They'll have and to that, be yeah. for him. Uh -huh. It didn't work. Right. And my ally, Germantown Avenue is a dividing line, even mm -hmm. in Germantown. So east of Germantown Avenue is primarily black. West of Germantown Avenue is primarily white. That's, I'm from the west. A guy named David Richardson was from the east. So Dave was our candidate in the next legislative district as part of the revolution. And he was my ally. So the combination of Richardson and me, there was no way in the world they were going to get away with that. Mm -hmm. So we seated our word leader in 72. Mm -hmm. Next stop, the, I, at, by the time this all happened, I had purchased a house on the west side. I was living on the east side, had purchased a house on the west side. And a fellow named David Savitt was the incumbent legislator. And he, um, he ascended the bench, leaving the seat open. Mm -hmm. So there's a little-known rule in the Democratic Party that a special election, the vacancy is to be filled by the party on a convention of the committee people. Mm -hmm. Now, no one has ever paid any attention to that. It's just too Democratic with a small <laughs> d, right? They just assemble the ward leaders. So I went, to see, uh, I went to see each of the committee people in the district, a third of whom were already my folks, Right, mm -hmm. some of whom were still interested in the revolution, so they were going to run. And now the district at that point consisted of a little neighborhood, Kawissahickon, as part of Maniunk, west side of Germantown, East Falls, top of North Philadelphia, down towards Strawberry Mansion. Okay, so I went around to see all the committee people, and even the ones that I had not any relationship. But with. people are operating that this is just a ward leader. They pick. don't know about yeah, this. Okay. They don't know okay, about right. this rule. Yeah. Right. So I ran, I organized all the committee people. They said, okay, yeah, we'll be for you. Mm -hmm. We'll be for you. I said, okay, tell your ward leader. And they said, okay. So then I went to see the party chairman, <laughs> a fellow named Pete Camille. And I said, he was a state senator at one point. I said, Senator, uh, I would like to be the party's nominee. And he said, well, we have someone else in mind, and I think the ward leaders will select that person. I said, well, Senator, respectfully, um, if I'm not the nominee, we'll be back in federal court. He said, 
He calls in the lawyer, and, and, they, and they said, <laughs> on, on what basis? I said, on the basis that the party rules, which are on file, of which I have a certified copy, mm -hmm. require convention of the committee people. And at that point, there were three open seats. Hmm. And that means, had I forced the issue, they would have had these conventions. And my God, you'd have had a democratic process. That had to be stopped, of course. <laughs> so he said, well, we'll think this over. So meanwhile, the word leaders are telling me, look, if Pete's not against you and my committee people are for you, I'll be for you. So they get to the, they get to the meeting and the ward leaders are going to select the special election candidate and endorse someone in the same primary at the same time. Um, and um, so my ward leader nominates me. Mm -hmm. There's a pause. 13th ward leader is looking at the chairman, doesn't get any signal, says, I second the motion. 21st ward leader from Roxborough, he says, okay, I second the motion too. <laughs> at that point, the um, party chairman turns to uh, the last ward leader, who was the Rizzo, who was the party choice nominally, and said, well, Mrs. Land, her name was Ann Land, very nice lady, uh, said, well, do you want to make this unanimous? And she said, I certainly don't. She gets up, goes to see Frank Rizzo, who is the mayor, mm -hmm. and that was my entrance into the Rizzo versus Camille Wars. <laughs> and so subsequent elections were various devices by the Rizzo people and the regular party people to finally get rid of me, none of which was entirely successful. So uh, how do you end up in the House of Representatives? So that was what I was running for, the state rep. So, okay. And that was it. So I get elected in 74, re-elected 76, et cetera. Etc., which ended up being what 19 years, I think, in yeah. the House of Representatives. But after uh, four, four or six years, I forget what it was, after a couple of terms, I realized that I'm gonna to have to fight on this front, and this job is not really worth having. In those days, there was no information, it's kind of hard to believe, but there was no information provided to the members at all. They had mm -hmm. no idea what was in the bills. The leadership ran everything, they told you how to vote. Well, you were, it was a part-time legislature at that time. I yes. think paid a couple thousand bucks a year. Right. Uh, you didn't have the legislative staff even. Nope. Uh, there was that, no staff. That you've got up there today. Yeah, there was nothing. And so the leadership ran everything, so I wasn't even a participant. It was insane. So I made the decision, well, I've either got to leave this and, mm -hmm. and get out of politics and, you know, because I was trying to practice law on the side and mm -hmm. not... Because you, you know. did need to have another job. Oh, I yeah. mean, there, there was no sure. way that it wasn't the full-time legislature oh, we've no, got no, today. No, 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 no. But it was hard keeping, you know, keeping body and soul together. Mm -hmm. um, so my wife was working. You're finding your way to Harrisburg as you're living in. Uh, oh, <laughs> man. Yeah, it's murder. So anyway, um, so I decided either I have to change this, this place mm -hmm. or I have to give up. Get out. Mm -hmm. Just like trying to get into politics in Philadelphia. Nobody says, geez, Bob, it's a great idea. Come on in, right? So luckily for me, there was a wave uh, of independents that got elected uh, from Western Pennsylvania mm -hmm. on the heels of a pay raise. Hmm. Uh, and these guys all came in young, feisty. And then there was another wave came in from Philadelphia that was kind of and that helped Bill Green finally get elected mayor. So Green is the mayor back home. So it's a more manageable situation for me. The new guys are coming in. So all that came together in a kind of a revolution. Are Democrats uh, um, in the majority in the legislature at, at this the, time? At, at this point, okay. yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, I was on the front end of that wave, which essentially carried me forward. And as caucus chairman, and my pitch was, um, and maybe this is ideological, I don't know. My pitch was, grow up. <laughs> Here's the deal. You guys need to be informed about what's going on, and you need to take responsibility for those decisions. Mm -hmm. No more the leadership made me do it, okay? And so that was the deal, and it was a good deal. The, instead of being infantile and getting paid off with little favors and being told how to vote, they really became quite independent and pretty well informed and and so that was a big deal, and that became the ethos of the Democratic caucus. And so uh, was it at this time, were there people who had been there for decades? I mean, yes. because, okay, so you've got sort of that uh, old boy or old school yep. uh, mentality. You're coming in trying to 
say, let's do something here rather than yeah. uh, just twiddle our thumbs and do whatever the leaders say. Uh, how many sure. how many elections did you want at this point when you start to rise in, in leadership or having influence within the caucus? I think 78 okay. or 80. So I'm, did, I'm not uh, sure. a, few, a short time in, in relative, relative to, yeah. 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 So, I mean, first time uh, I ran for caucus chairman, which is sort of the lowest rung, mm-hmm. near the low rung, um, and I was dealt out. It was very interesting and useful experience once uh-huh. again, you know. Internal politics. Internal politics, and I was dealt out. Um, it was fascinating. And uh, when Jim Mandarino, who was running the show, saw that I w- what would happen in that election is the person with the lowest performance would drop out until someone had a majority. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So each time, what I did was I got second vote commitments from people. So I'd go to somebody and say, they'll say me, I'm voting for Bud mm-hmm. George. I'm mm-hmm. committed. I said, well, could you give me your vote on the second ballot if Bud drops out? And they would say, okay. Okay. So I had all these second ballot uh-huh. votes. So it, when it came down to just me and one other guy, it was pretty obvious I was going to win. Mm-hmm. I had all the momentum, mm-hmm. right? So they realized that there was a group from Philadelphia that was committed to me on the next ballot. So what they did was they... Jimmy Mandarino, recessed the caucus, brought the, that Philadelphia group over into his office where they met with Buddy C. and Franny, who was then the legendary power in the state Senate mm-hmm. from Philadelphia, uh, and a guy named Marty Weinberg, who was the party chairman in Philadelphia, and Jim Mandarino. And in my neighborhood, there was an expression, they bought him for a fish cake. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll never forget they came back and voted against me and I said well what did you get and I'll never forget that oh buddy said we would get consideration it's uh. <laughs> <laughs> hysterical wow so in any event having been dealt out once second time around two years later I knew how to handle it so, uh, so you ended up sticking around for a while yeah. I get, was that because you believed look I can I can make a difference here uh, and uh, well, well yeah. it, it was an exciting yeah. first of all yeah. it was an exciting time yeah uh, because at, once I get elected Cox's chairman we now rolled over the information process okay so I had one staff guy and he would work with the committee staff and produce uh, analyses which he'd get to me on a Saturday I'd turn it around get it back to him on Sunday it would go to print on Monday and by Monday afternoon the, at the caucus guys have analyses of bills for the first time and they're standing up and saying I like this I don't like this mm-hmm. whatever it was really really exciting so you changed some of the culture there of uh, really a, a member's member or you know yeah. a, a member you know a leader who was actually and having also, the members participate. And personally, it was also really yeah. enjoyable. I mean, we had, in addition to kind of the Young Turks, which were great, it was great fun mm-hmm. being with those guys, okay. to be honest with you. Um, there were, the old timers were just some great people. I mean, Bud George, for example, great character from up in Clearfield, Clearfield yeah. County. I'd never been to Clearfield County in my <laughs> life, you know, and I went up there and visited him and, uh, it was just a terrific, terrific experience on a human level. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. What about uh, kind of the partisanship? I mean, we we see it's almost just tribalism today. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, what was it like then? Was there collegiality of, of hey, we've got uh, differences from the, the Republicans, but uh, we can work together to solve these problems? Or is this kind of a, you know, reminiscing about the good old days when in reality there was plenty of that partisanship that uh, we see today. Well, yeah, the partisanship is actually not the issue. Mm. I don't think that that's an important issue. I think it's not the presence of partisanship. Mm -hmm. It's the absence of the priority of governing. Mm. So the difference in those days, and I didn't get a grasp of this until I actually became a whip and then subsequently leader, was that when you move into leadership, your obligation changes. Your primary obligation is to govern. Mm. So the things that have been important to you, issues of conscience almost, issues of party loyalty, issues of pack home, what does this mean? Your primary obligation now is to govern. And that's a very difficult realization. And what it enables you to do is to um, 
make the tough decisions. And once the obligation to govern as, as primary is shared by the Republican leadership, the Democratic leadership, the governor's office, then you can govern. Mm-hmm. So if you come across a uh, imminent bankruptcy of the Workmen's Comp Fund, right? Mm-hmm. Where are we going to get that money? Okay, how's this going to work? So ultimately, the members have the ability to get up and issue press releases and fulminate and, you know, be advocates and everything. Mm-hmm. But the leadership has the obligation to, okay, let's get this together. The best example, in my opinion, uh, two good examples come to mind. One is Matt Ryan. Working with Matt Ryan, uh, he was a real model for me. I mean, Matt Ryan was... The mo- Republican from Oh, he's a Republican. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. He's a Republican from Delaware County, uh-huh. became the leader and then the speaker of the Republican Party. And Matt was witty and brilliant and on the House floor, forceful. Mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't get a more Republican guy than a, than a, a Republican from Delaware County, okay? <laughs> um, and, and also a man whose values made him wear it on his sleeve, but his values were firm and clear, and he wasn't compromising them. Mm. But... As a leader, you met with Matt Ryan, and you knew, for example, that this had to be done. A budget had yeah, to be done right. by June 30. Yeah. And we have to match spending. And and in order to get to 102, that means you're going to have to leave this table with something, and I am as well, and uh, we figure that out. Right. And when Matt was in the majority, he would, he would say, how many votes, if we give you this, how many votes can you get me? You know, and, and okay, we'll put up we'll put up the necessary ten votes, but we're not going to put them up until you get to ninety two. Mm-hmm. You get to ninety two, or you get to ninety five. Better yet, so mm-hmm. we have some. You get to ninety five, Matt. We'll put up ten to get you to one hundred and five. So you have three. They can always, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and then the sequence that would work on the House floor was you could watch the bulk of the greens go up. You'd see guys who haven't voted. The Reds would go up. <laughs> watching. Watching. <laughs> and then the board would move. And then and when I was whip, I'll never forget that, walking up the aisle and say, okay, it's time for you to go, yes. Mm. So uh, you, you rise to whip, uh, rise to majority leader, right. uh, and even ascend to speaker. Yes. Uh, uh, talk about that. How did that. How did all that happen from the guy that they were trying to close out and keep out of, uh, <laughs> out of leadership to... Uh, Elevate to the, the role that uh, Benjamin Franklin held. I mean, that's yeah, that's, that's quite very few people can claim that. That's true. Yeah, I'm very proud of that. Um, so, um, what happened was, first of all, just a uh, vacancy. I mean, uh, Leroy Evers retired. Jim Manrino became a speaker. I was the so logic. just showing up is how you got the involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. Um, I. There's a lot of time that goes into this, a lot of time on task, as you might imagine. So, for example, um, I was going to be the candidate of the Young Turks mm-hmm. uh, to move up to majority leader. And we both realized that I had not paid enough attention to the internal politics, that I was highly vulnerable. So the message loud and clear from my guys was, you have to put more time in here. Mm. At the time, I'm also working a job back home. I also have a constituent service office because the ward function is still a big deal in Philadelphia. So, and, and time means get your butt out on the road and go to members' districts, right? I mean, that's, uh, hang around yeah. Harrisburg. Yeah. Yeah. Members' <laughs> district is great. Harrisburg yeah. is terrible yeah. <laughs> because the only thing that are available are bars, uh-huh. and people get in trouble in bars. I knew that <laughs> get growing up. So, so in any event. Um, they said, you got to be here. Now, it was always my commitment to be home in time for the kids to go to bed. Mm-hmm. Because God knows I'm not going to, my wife did the bulk of the child room, but, uh, you know, I got to be home in time for, but, so they said, great, you're always going back to Philly. So I said, okay. So I had to make a different kind of a commitment. And I organized for the sake of probably my own mental health, but also for the political value, I organized softball games in the spring. So the Democrats played the Republicans, uh-huh. we played the senators, we played the press, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. And every Monday night we had a softball game. And we had a great time. We went, usually would go back to 
uh, a fellow named Pete Wombach was a state rep from Harrisburg. We go back to his house and kind of put on a feed and, and sit, sit on the steps out front. God knows what his neighbors thought. And his wife was <laughs> Who are a, these vagrants, right? Yeah, that's right. His wife was a saint to tolerate this whole gang coming in there after a softball game. And this is going to sound simple-minded. We provided our own entertainment. Guys would stand up and do routine. Jerry Kaczynski became famous for his ability to fire a grape three stories high and then catch it in his mouth on the way down. <laughs> so it gives you some idea of the quality of the talent uh, show. Of the it? talent, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> so in any event, it became a very social kind of exchange, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of interaction with Republicans, a lot of interaction with people that don't ordinarily talk to each other, even within the Democratic caucus, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, at, Which and, is an important thing when you're, oh, yeah, everybody's absolutely. equal. And again, 102 is always your, uh, your target. How do you get things done? And people had to feel comfortable coming to you and knowing a couple things. Number one, that they could speak to you in confidence. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely not going anywhere. Uh, number two, that a commitment was a commitment. That you would stand by mm-hmm. your commitments. Number three, that... If they did something for the greater good today, they would have an opportunity to come to you later and say, I need, you know, the caucus to support my mm-hmm. interests on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was always, and they understood, the members understood, and I think the folks back home understood in those days, that to get the job done, you needed, you don't have to abandon principle, but you needed to be able to shift back and forth. Mm-hmm. So um, as leader, of course, you are elected by the caucus and you kind of have to drive the caucus agenda. Um, But were there things that uh, that drove you that you were passionate about? I know we'll get to sort of your passions now, the things that uh, you love to work on. But was there something while you were an elected official? These were the things that I was passionate about, even maybe your some achievements during that time. Uh, I was primarily uh, the things that that kind of. I was passionate about were really neighborhood based. They were things that I would observe in the neighborhood and try and understand whether or not something had to be done legislatively. So these are not kind of issues that are big media mm-hmm. star mm-hmm. stuff. But for example, we had bars in the neighborhood that were really attractive nuisances. You know, people would come there and they'd be dealing drugs. You know, drunks hanging around at night, et cetera, et cetera. So I introduced legislation that enabled uh, us to close down nuisance bars in the neighborhood. It was tremendous, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. So, okay, well, you mean you got passionate (laughs) about nuisance? Yes, I did. We had boarding homes where people were really being taken advantage of. It was really a disgrace. Mm -hmm. And so I got boarding home legislation through. Um, I got uh, additional money for for scholarships and whatnot for community colleges. Um, So we did... uh, I'll never forget going to war with the insurance companies and the trial lawyers, incidentally, but be that as it may. Um, so in, insurance rates at that point for automobiles were skyrocketing. Mm. I remember taking on the insurance companies. Um, and, and then as you move into leadership, one of the things that has to happen is you really need to uh, not just share, but you need to give away a lot of credit for accomplishment mm. because in order to bring people in, they have to be able to turn around and tell others, you know. So, for example, the Ethics Act. Um, you know, I I was heavily involved in getting that created, but my name's your not name's not. Yeah. No, yeah. I have the I have the pen up here on the wall, yeah. um, but uh, but never, others got the credit other, for have it. to yeah. Yeah. absolutely, and that's important. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. not big sacrifice on my part. That's how you make it go. Or, for example, probably the best example. Uh, is uh, the city of Philadelphia was brought to the edge of bankruptcy. And um, I'll never forget this. Uh, nobody seemed to be able to figure out what to do. And Wilson Good was the mayor, and he was the first black mayor in the city's history. And so any opposition to him was viewed as racist, mm. which is you know, unattractive then, certainly fatal now, but unattractive then, and particularly in a district like mine, which was predominantly black. So... Anyway, I called a meeting on Friday the 13th of April in 1990. Uh, I 
chose that day, so it would be remembered, <laughs> and had Vince Fuma, who was a very powerful state senator, mm-hmm. uh, and the mayor, and head of city council, and we all came in, said, we gotta figure out a way to handle this problem. So in any event, we did a lot of research, went around, looked at Chicago, New York, oversight commissions, et cetera, et cetera. We got to August, and, and now the city has cyclical revenues, so they have to borrow mid-term, mid-year. So in August, that's when it's at its lowest, the banks refused to lend any money. Mm. And um, the they were challenging the fiscal situation of the city. And the city controller, Jonathan Seidel, a, a guy with a lot of courage, stood up and said, this city's going under. And he revealed the realities. At that point, everybody ran for cover. Mm. Um, so in any event, to make the story just a little longer, called a press conference uh, in just after the election of 1990 and said, we're going to put together an authority. The bank said, we will lend money back to the city if the legislation gets introduced. So we introduced legislation in February. Uh, I'm the only sponsor. I couldn't get anyone else to sponsor it. Now, we had some brilliant people working on the legislation, some brilliant lawyers, and Joe McLaughlin played a major role. He was a lobbyist at the time. But in any event, but couldn't get anybody else for it. People outside the city didn't want to be accused of bailing the city out. Right. People inside the city didn't want to be accused of taking power away from the first black mayor. Mm. So there was nobody. <laughs> so I'm now the Speaker of the House, and I'll never forget no one would defend the bill. So I had to leave the podium and come down and defend the bill. Now, what really happened, of course, is this was a real group effort. Every legislative effort, no matter who claims what credit, believe me, is, is collective. Earl Baker over in the Senate on the Republican side from Chester, Chester County, County Center, yeah. played a tremendous role helping mm-hmm. this county. Vince Fumo was, without Vince Fumo, this could never have happened. Mm. Um, very powerful senator from Philadelphia. So anyway, that, so he asked, what was I passionate yeah. about? Yeah. I, was, I, I was passionate about solving problems mm-hmm. where government was appropriately the vehicle to do so. So you decided to run for governor. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and where did that uh, wild idea come from? This neighborhood kid saying, I'm going to, uh, you know, put my boots down on uh, six, in 67 counties and try to uh, yeah. uh, r- win a statewide race. Yeah. Um, so it was an illusion. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it, that dawned on me a little late. So the, <laughs> the way that happened was I really thought, uh, and it, it had a lot to do with my one overriding passion, I guess, which is about education mm-hmm. and having choice in education. Uh, that is the one, I guess, that approaches ideology, my passion for that. But in any event, that was one of the things that was very important to me. So I decided to run for governor because I thought it would be, you know. This is uh, 1994, four, correct? Correct. Yeah. So in any event, I got talked into hiring a pollster, a big-time pollster, because it would add credibility to the campaign. So I put aside my skepticism. We hired the poll. So we now took a poll, and there were seven people in the primary. Took a poll. <coughs> they demonstrated that I was at 11% in the poll. Now, I heard that and couldn't believe it. I, just, I couldn't get 11% in my own family. I mean, <laughs> 11%, that's crazy. And he said, yep, you're at 11%. We're big-time operators. You take it from us. Okay. Go out and raise a million dollars. We'll strategically place it. Then we'll take a poll, and then it'll be just you and the front runner, a guy named Mark Single. So I said, okay. So I went out, explained to supporters, like, here's what we're going to do. Here's the strategy. I raised a million bucks. We put it on media, took another poll, 4%. <laughs> so one possible explanation is that the more people got to know me, the less they liked me. <laughs> <laughs> or it could be the whole thing. And obviously, I couldn't go back to supporters then and say, oh, well, yeah. we're wrong. How about another million? Yeah, we you can know. get to 1%. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, we keep this up. Right. Exactly. So I was out. So, Bob, you mentioned education as being yeah. a passion. I know that that's, uh, in fact, what you work a lot on now in your private practice. So yes. you've gone back uh, your full time uh, with your firm yes. uh, here in Chestnut Hill. And uh, talk about why you've become so passionate about choice in education 
And uh, particularly, you know, look, you've been a Democrat. That's you're you're on the outside a little bit when it comes to where the party stands when it comes to alternatives, say, to the the traditional public school system. Yeah, uh, I'm old old enough, and this probably happens with fashion as well, but it certainly happens with political points of view, that if you stay with your principles long enough, they will ultimately come back in fashion. Um, <laughs> That's why you wear those wide ties. <laughs> right, right. That could be the explanation. So Bell bottoms, too. You know, all those things, right? So in the 1960s, I was fervent about equality of opportunity and equality of educational opportunity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely passionate about that. In the 1970s, when I ran for office, same thing, mm. and I ran on a platform of school choice. Mm. And as you might imagine, it caused significant opposition from teachers' unions and, and others. Mm-hmm. Right? And how did you define that? It's like, hey, let's let kids go to whatever school works for them. I mean, how, as you define choice in the 60s and 70s, was it basically, uh, hey, taxes are going to pay for these schools. Let's uh, pay for them to go to schools that work better for kids. Yes, in a word, okay. vouchers. Okay, yeah. Vouchers. Mm-hmm. So if the, if the government is, education ultimately is going to represent a deal between the parents, the community, the local school district, and the state. Mm-hmm. Now, Who's going to pay what kind of role in that deal? Mm-hmm. Who is ultimately, if you ask yourself, who is ultimately responsible for a child's education? Mm-hmm. My answer is the parents. Mm-hmm. And who has the strongest incentive to make sure it's good? The, the parents. parents. Yes. Exactly. Now, what do you then, next step in that thinking, well, what about the tremendous economic inequality of parents? How in the world are you going to create a system which enables those parents to take responsibility if they don't really have the money to do it. And in those days, it was much more affordable than it is today, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in those days, it was a big difference, you know? And so I said, well, the answer is, if government's role in all this ought to be to equalize that disparity. So you give folks, um, you know, proportional to their income, you know, you give them the, the, the voucher, they put it in the backpack, and the kid goes to school. That was my position then. It's my position. Did, did you get pushback uh, uh, from that? Position? I mean, was that? I mean, <laughs> is it understatement of, of uh, yes, the day? that is an yes. understatement. People raged at me, uh, and this was, by the way, a very left-wing attitude. You know, this well, is—it's hard for for people yeah, to believe this. Right. But I was a left-winger. Yeah. In the 1960s, I believe the same things now, and I'm now a right-winger. Yeah. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> Um, well, it is where lots of folks say that uh, John Kennedy would probably fit better in the Republican Party today, on the, on the economic issues, right? Or, uh, so, or maybe as a yeah. Whig. I'm yeah, not, okay. I'm not Fine. sure. Fine. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but to give you an example of pushback, uh, I was invited to a forum to discuss uh, my views on this, and it was a woman named Judy Wicks who ran a very left-winger, great just a, offbeat, but a terrific gal, right? <laughs> and, and I knew where she was. She was way, way out there on the left side. So in any event, um, she had a restaurant out near Penn, and she held these forums, and it was great fun. So in any event, I went out there to talk about school choice. I walked in the room, and it's loaded to the gunnels, every seat taken, standing room only, which I, of course, attributed to my right, charisma. Right. They heard you were coming. I yes. heard I was yeah. coming, yeah. Well, that part was true. It turns out the teachers' union had bought every seat. So, so I got halfway into the speech, and the crowd was so restive that I said, look, let's just turn to questions and mm-hmm. comments. Right? So people are jumping up and, you know, incredibly hostile. So this one woman, uh, toward the end, uh, this one woman jumps up, and she can, she's so angry that she can barely get the question out. And her comments. So I said, well, let me, let me ask you a question. If you had a typical Philadelphia row house family, let's say the dad graduated from high school. Maybe mom didn't graduate from high school. There's some illiteracy in the family, maybe some alcoholism in the family. Do you think that kind of family ought to have the responsibility and the authority to decide your own children's education? And she said, that's what I'm talking about. Absolutely not. So I said, well, that's my family, and my brother and I are doing fine without your help. Thank you. That was the end of that. But you, I've been to more than one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I've been to race riots where I was the only white guy. <laughs> I mean, I've been to forums defending things where the mob, you know, literally wants to get at you physically. It's all right. So, so uh, now you're working on behalf of a lot of charter schools. Yes, that's uh, right. Uh, helping them with the legal challenges and hurdles. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I really admire Tom Ridge and Charles Zogby. They did. They this went through hell to get charter schools passed. There is a model of education which is independent schools that are independent, mission-driven, um, schools of choice. Mm -hmm. And the question was whether or not that model could exist in a public setting. So Tom Ridge and, and Charles Zogby had to settle for half a loaf instead of any kind of real voucher program. They settled for charter school, which I understand completely. Mm -hmm. So the law has never really, you know, deregulated they keep re-regulating the deregulation mm -hmm. center. So so our law practice is devoted strictly to that struggle. And you see that need uh, here in Philadelphia oh, yeah. uh, tremendously. What uh, I think there's tens of thousands, 40,000 maybe on waiting yes. lists, uh, kids trying to get into these alternatives that yeah. parents, uh, those parents that you just described of your own saying, hey, the, the, the city school system uh, is not doing well for my child, it, whether it's academically or even just safety yeah. uh, being a reason. Uh, yet we don't seem to be uh, allowing for the supply to meet the demand. Um, why is it that uh, do you think that there isn't this embrace, as you did uh, you know, so long ago, um, recognizing that this is about equal opportunity and um, uh, to me, it shouldn't be a, a partisan issue, yeah. Democrat-Republican, but one of, of fairness for, for the poor to access education systems that, you know, you were able to give to your kids because you did well, and, and yeah. I'm able for my kids. Yeah. I think it's a combination where, of self-interest uh, and uh, ideology and a very paternalistic ideology. Mm. And and it, and its worst moments, it's really racist. There is a sense that those people, this is a sense on the part of the, the powers that be, mm -hmm. that those people, whether it's white folks that are poor or black folks or whatever, they really can't make good decisions, which is why, going back to that other forum, I framed it the way I did. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Um, and uh, that combines with self-interest. And when the ideology and self-interest lock in and then it's totally supported by the mainstream media and the inquiry and all this stuff this kind of liberal orthodoxy uh, it's just it's awfully tough to fight do you see any hope for that changing to where there would be those that uh, would break against the orthodoxy if you will um, so that it does become something that is just broadly, I mean, I think we're seeing this in some of the areas, whether it's criminal justice reform, I think you're seeing that kind of uh, um, uh, bipartisan effort there to take care of some of these things. It's a whole idea that uh, you got to be tough on crime, which just means build more prisons, lock people up. And um, now it's kind of that smart on crime is is. Uh, the buzzword and how we might go about doing. I mean, do you see that as a possibility that, or is this just so deep in the orthodoxy of the parties or the interests that uh, we're going to continue to be fighting on the fringes? You know, if we can free a few thousand kids to make choices instead of really allowing for every child to, to make that choice. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, uh, let me put it this way. Conventional wisdom would not, yield a hopeful result. Mm -hmm. So if you take existing trends, I think the answer is no. There's no real basis to be hopeful about that. Being a major success, you know, you nibble at the edges, you do what you can. Um, but conventional wisdom now is of much less value, much more limited value, because the, the popular culture and politics and everything now is vulnerable to waves of sentiment that just seemed to blow away mm. things. I know people who have held office and done by anybody's standard a great job in office. Whoop, they're gone. They're gone. Why? Well, because they were too Trump or they weren't Trump enough. <laughs> and I'm, what the heck does that have to do with the job? <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? What? Yeah. Or the Me Too or whatever. I mean, there are waves that come over that if you try and think back, 
to where we were before the wave mm -hmm. hit, they would have been unthinkable. Mm -hmm. So conventional wisdom, uh, although it does not yield a positive perspective, I think it's of less value for predictive purposes. So how do you answer the folks that, that say, Bob, um, you know, you're, you're fighting the wrong battle. You, you really ought to be uh, fighting to reform uh, the traditional public school system rather than defending these charter schools or, or advocating for choice. Why, why don't you go that route? I mean, it would seem that that's more in your, you know, political party orthodoxy. Uh, uh, how do you answer those that say you should, you're fighting the wrong uh, battle in this, in this fight to make education better? Well, life is short. Uh, and uh, the probability of any success internal to that is absolutely, absolutely minimal. It's truly not just worth the effort. I mean, I think the strength uh, of, of this movement, the strength uh, is from the bottom. Let me put it this way. I think I, I'm trying to identify my ideology, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think I'm a populist. I'm not a liberal, not a conservative, but a pragmatic populist. And so what that means is if you address what's coming from underneath and address it in a practical way, I think that's where the future is and should be, as opposed to reform. I meet so many people that I say to them, you know, you're trying to change the architecture. The problem is the roof's leaking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, does anybody want to No, we want a systemic reform and it's got to work for everybody or it can't work for anybody. I'm like, well, we tried something in Philadelphia, the School Reform Commission. I mean, yes. when that was uh, being discussed and thinking, uh, were you hopeful for that? Or did you think, look, you're uh, once again, you're you're talking about the architecture while the roof yeah. is leaking. Yeah. Um, and what's I, your assessment now that it is it is gone uh, right. and the prospects for the future there? That's a lot to consider no it's easy um when the src was formed i was counsel to the src okay uh and there was only one decision and that dictated the failure of the src mm. and that is that the chairman who is a terrific guy made enormous sacrifices to be in that job um he decided that in the interests of harmony in the city uh he wanted to make sure that votes of the SRC were unanimous. Mm. So the majority that was appointed from the state for Could the you imagine trying to get 203 votes, right, exactly, in the House? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that gave that minority an opportunity to have disproportionate power and essentially put the brakes on anything mm. constructive that could be done. Um, so that was... Or, or aggressive that uh, may not be as popular, uh, uh, exactly. you know, and, but you just got to do it and bite the bullet and move forward. Look, there's only three rules in politics, only three skills in politics. You have to know how to fight. You have to know how to cooperate and make a deal. And you got to know when to do which. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you don't make that third decision really well, all will fall. Okay. So you saw you you thought from the very beginning this is just set up for uh, no, no in the beginning I thought I thought it would really work okay but having made the decision to not fight okay okay but instead to cooperate that was the wrong time to cooperate and they cooperated themselves right into failure right into failure the other thing and this was a bit of a surprise to me was the level of hypocrisy uh, among the big players all the people, the universities, who all have education departments, wanted no parts of running a school. They wanted to consult mm. with you. They wanted to have some measure of influence over you, in which case we said to, the, to universities in Philadelphia, you think you know education? You think you know how to run a school? Run one. <laughs> Here. Not one. Not one stepped up to the plate. All the corporate people, the business people that talk about a trained workforce, got to do something mm -hmm. we went to them and said take over a school you guys know how to run an organization you're always critical of the quote the bureaucracy over here good run a school not one all the national people that were uh, a guy named benno schmidt i think was his name old from yale formed edison corporation you guys want to run a school run a school mm. well we'll run a school district no you want to run this school, run that school. We'll turn it over to a private operator. Mm -hmm. Zero. Mm -hmm. 
So the hypocrisy mm -hmm. was a, a bit of a surprise to me. So going Which forward, is one of the yeah. reasons why populism is the answer. Yeah. If you keep waiting for the big guys yeah. to reform right. your system, yeah. you're going to keep waiting. Yeah. So, so what do you think prospects are for the future for Philadelphia? Uh, was this the right move of disbanding the SRC? And is this going to, uh, you know, this new phase, do you think they will be able to solve the problems? No, that's irrelevant. Hmm. I mean, Philadelphia at one point had a, uh, an elected school board. Uh, but that was done away with because it was inefficient and corrupt, so they had an appointed school board, uh, appointed by the board of judges. Well, that didn't work, so they changed the architecture and had it appointed by the mayor. But from a panel that would be pre-selected by a blue ribbon commission under the charter, Philadelphia Charter in 1950, well, that didn't work, so we had the school reform commission. And, oh, that didn't work. So now <laughs> we've got a board appointed by the mayor. For God's sake. Hmm. I mean, none of this, it, this is all architecture. Hmm. Hmm. And people like to design things, step back, and not do the painful work. Well, while you continue to uh, work on behalf of alternatives for kids that parents are clamoring to choose, um, hopefully we can get some uh, more of that kind of choice while we wait for Superman in, uh, uh, in the Philadelphia <laughs> public schools, right? Uh, God willing. Uh, yeah. Well, now you'll be able to tell your grandkids that you were on a podcast, uh, Bob, and uh, they wow. will think that you have arrived. So uh, I guess by the time my grandchildren care in that happy but <laughs> unlikely event, podcasts will be a thing of the past. Well, I appreciate your taking time <laughs> and for us uh, chatting and, and our longtime friendship. I really appreciate it and enjoy it. Thanks, Matt. So do I. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E.